I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the White Witch Podcast with me, Carly. Before we get started with today's episode, I have an announcement to make. My book is officially available for pre-order. There is a link in the show notes if you would like to order a copy. It's called The White Witch's Book of Healing, weaving magical rituals throughout your craft for sacred healing and reclamation of the wild witch within. I just want to say, if you have pre-ordered it already, thank you so, so much. It got to number one in the Amazon Wicker Hot New Releases chart and another chart, and I am absolutely stunned. So thank you. Today's episode is all about the marrow. The word marrow or maraw comes from the Irish muir, meaning sea, and oi, meaning made and refers specifically to the female of the species. Mermen, the Mero's male counterparts, have been rarely seen. They have been described as exceptionally ugly and scaled, with pig-like features and long pointed teeth. Mero's themselves are extremely beautiful and are promiscuous in their relations with mortals. The Irish marrow differs physically from humans in that her feet are flatter than those of a mortal and her hands have a thin webbing between the fingers. It should not be assumed that marrows are kindly and well disposed towards mortals. As members of the she or Irish fairy world, the inhabitants of Kierfoen, the land beneath the waves, have a natural dislike of humans. In some parts of Ireland, they are regarded as messengers of doom and death. Marrows have special clothing to enable them to travel through ocean currents. In Kerry, Cork and Wexford, they wear a small red cap made from feathers called a Cahullan Druith. However, in more northerly waters, they travel through the sea wrapped in sealskin cloaks taking on the appearance and attributes of seals, so akin to the selkie. In order to come ashore, the Mero abandons her cap or cloak, so any mortal who finds these has powers over her, as she cannot return to the sea until they are retrieved. Hiding the cloak in the thatches of his house, a fisherman may persuade the Mero to marry them. Such brides are often extremely wealthy with fortunes of gold plundered from shipwrecks. Eventually, the Merrow will recover the cloak and finds her urge to return to the sea so strong that she leaves her human husband and children behind. Many coastal dwellers have taken Merrows as lovers 
number of Irish families claim their descent from such unions, notably the O'Flaherty and O'Sullivan families of Kerry and the McNamaras of Clare. The Irish poet W.B. Yeats reported a further case in his Irish fairy and folktales as follows. The Merrow, or if you write it in the Irish Moraw, or Moraghach, I can't pronounce that and I couldn't find the pronunciation for it either, sorry, from Muir, Sea and Oi, a maid, is not uncommon, they say, on the wilder coasts. The fishermen do not like to see them, for it always means coming gales. The male Merrows, if you can use such a phrase, I have never heard the masculine of Merrow, have green teeth, green hair, pig's eyes and red noses. But their women are beautiful for all their fishtails and the little duck-like scale between their fingers. Sometimes they prefer small blame to them, good-looking fishermen to their sea lovers. Near Bantry in the last century, there is said to have been a woman covered all over with scales like fish who was descended from such a marriage. Sometimes they come out of the sea and wander about the shore in the shape of little hornless cows. They have one in their own shape, a red cap called a Cohelan druif, usually covered with feathers. If this is stolen, they cannot again go down under the waves. Red is the colour of magic in every country and has been so from the very earliest times. The caps of fairies and magicians are well nigh always red. Whilst most of the stories we have about Meros are from the 18th century, these creatures are described in older texts and appear in the Book of Invasions. The murder hand in this great text is described as being a siren-like sea nymph that the Milesians encountered when reaching island shores. Catherine Briggs, in her Dictionary of Fairies, described them as the Irish equivalent of mermaids. Like them, they are beautiful, though with fishes' tails and little webs between their fingers. They are dreaded because they appear before storms, but they are gentler than most mermaids and often fall in love with mortal fishermen. So that account differs from the tale I'm about to tell you, as does the appearance. There are accounts that state that the marrow has a fish's tail. There are other accounts that say they have like webbed feet, but yeah, sort of still still more similar to a human than perhaps a fish. It is very difficult to kind of get to the bottom of it. So see what you think. This is the tale, the Fomorians and the Merrow. Roth was a Fomorian son carrying out his duties patrolling the coastal borders of Ireland. It would appear that the Merrows took umbrage at his presence within their seas and took steps to ensure he would no longer oppose a threat. The seemingly innocent beauties of the waters began their attack by lulling Roth gently to sleep with their enchanting melodies. Once he was sedated and clearly unable to fight back, they became bloodthirsty and homicidal. Violently, they tore the poor misfortune, limb from limb and joint from joint. Although much of him was consumed, the creature sent his fire floating over the current, the jagged femur pointing to what has now become known as the county of Waterford. 
Of course, sometimes on a bad day, there didn't need to be a catalyst to stir up the wrath and destruction of these ill-tempered, wily sea maids. They would simply take pleasure in brewing up storms, shipwrecking and drowning innocent sailors for no other reason other than crossing their watery path. And this tale is Looty of County Kerry and the Merrow. County Kerry lies on the Atlantic coast of Ireland and has strong links to the Merrow folk. Stories date back centuries and the most famous one of all involved a gentle fisherman who would rue the day he ever set eyes upon a Merrow woman. Whilst walking on the beach, a young man by the name of Looty saw an incredible sight. There, lying on the shingle, was the most beautiful female he had ever seen. A woman in every way, bar her fishtail, that was floundering on the sand. His kind nature took over from the disbelief and he realised quickly that the creature before him was in terrible distress. He lifted the woman into his two strong arms and carried her out to the waves. The Mero was named Marina and she was so ecstatic at being rescued, her malicious nature was subdued and she granted Luti free wishes. He asked for the ability to break curses brought about by dark magic, to be able to command malevolent spirits to carry out charitable deeds and the power to make good things happen for those in need. The young man's selflessness impressed the sea maiden so much she added a final gift of prosperity to Luti and all his future descendants. Luti was delighted and reached out to shake her hand. Sensing the pureness of his soul, her true wickedness came to the forefront as she began to seduce the unsuspecting hero, unsuspecting hero, with her alluring voice. A shocked Luti realised almost immediately what she was doing and reached into his pocket for his iron knife. As with all fairy folk, Marina could be harmed with iron and he lashed out. The mermaid dived beneath the waves, but not before uttering a terrifying promise to come back and reclaim Luti in nine years. Time passed and Luti married a local girl and had two sons. He took his youngest son fishing, and as Luti reached the shore, Marina rose from the ocean depths and grabbed the poor misfortune, dragging him down into the angry waves, and he was never heard from again. And then we have the Lady of Golorus. On the shore of Smerwick Harbour, one fine summer's morning, just at daybreak, stood Dick Fitzgerald, showing the Dadine, couldn't find a pronunciation for that either, which may be translated smoking his pipe. We'll go with that. The sun was gradually rising behind the lofty Brandon. The dark sea was getting green in the light and the mists clearing away out of the valleys went rolling and curling like the smoke from the corner of Dick's mouth. "'Tis just the pattern of a pretty morning,' said Dick, taking the pipe from between his lips and looking towards the distant ocean, which lay as still and tranquil as a tomb of polished marble. "'Well, to be sure,' continued he after a pause, 
Tis mighty lonesome to be talking to oneself by way of company and not to have another soul to answer me. Nothing but the child of one's own voice, the echo. I know this, that if I had the luck or maybe the misfortune, said Dick with a melancholy smile, to have the woman, it would not be this way with me. And what in the wide world is a man without a wife? He's no more surely than a bottle without a drop of drink in it, or dancing without music, or the left leg of a scissors, or a fishing line without a hook, or any other matter that is no ways complete. Is it not so? said Dick Fitzgerald, casting his eyes towards the rock upon the strand, which though it could not speak, stood up as firm and looked as bold as ever Kerry Witness did. But what was his astonishment at beholding? Just at the foot of that rock, a beautiful young creature, combing her hair, which was of a sea green colour, and now the salt water shining on it, appeared in the morning light like melted butter upon cabbage. Dick guessed at once that she was a marrow, although he had never seen one before, for he spied the Coheline Druif, or little enchanted cat which the sea people use for diving down into the ocean, lying upon the strand near her, and he had heard that if once he could possess himself of the cap, she would lose the power of going away into the water. So he seized it with all speed, and she, hearing the noise, turning her head about as natural as any Christian. When the marrow saw that her little diving cap was gone, the salt tears, doubly salt no doubt from her, came trickling down her cheeks and she began a low mournful cry with just the tender voice of a newborn infant. Dick, although he knew well enough what she was crying for, determined to keep the Koholin Druif, let her cry never so much to see what luck would come out of it. Yet he could not help pitying her and when the dumb thing looked up in his face and her cheeks all moist with tears, twas enough to make anyone feel, let alone Dick, who had ever and always, like most of his countrymen, a mighty tender heart of his own. Don't cry, my darling, said Dick Fitzgerald. But the marrow, like any bold child, only cried the more for that. Dick sat himself down by her side and took hold of her hand by way of comforting her. Twas in no particular an ugly hand, only there was a small web between the fingers, as there is in a duck's foot, but twas as thin and as white as the skin between egg and shell. What's your name, my darling, says Dick, thinking to make her conversant with him, but he got no answer. And he was certain sure now, either that she could not speak or did not understand him. He therefore squeezed her hand in his, as the only way he had of talking to her. It's the universal language, and there's not a woman in the world, be she fish or lady, that does not understand it. The Mero did not seem much displeased at this mode of conversation, and making an end of her whining all at once. Man, she says, looking up in Dick Fitzgerald's face, man, will you eat me? 
Buy all the red petticoats and check aprons between Dingle and Tralee, cried Dick, jumping up in amazement. I'd as soon eat myself, my jewel. Is it I eat you, my pet? Now, twas some ugly, ill-looking thief of a fish put that notion into your own pretty head, with the nice green hair down upon it. That is so cleanly combed out this morning. Man, said the Murrow, what will you do with me if you won't eat me? Dick's thoughts were running on a wife. He saw, at the first glimpse, that she was handsome. But since she spoke, and spoke too like any real woman, he was fairly in love with her. "'Twas the neat way she called him man that settled the matter entirely. "'Fish,' says Dick, trying to speak to her after her own short fashion. "'Fish,' says he, "'here's my word, fresh and fasting, for you this blessed morning, "'that I'll make you Mistress Fitzgerald before all the world, and that's what I'll do.' "'Never say the word twice,' says she. "'I'm ready and willing to be yours, Mr Fitzgerald, but stop if you please.' till I twist up my hair. It was some time before she had settled it entirely to her liking, for she guessed, I suppose, that she was going among strangers where she would be looked at. When that was done, the marrow put the comb in her pocket and then bent down her head and whispered some words to the water that was close to the foot of the rock. Dick saw the murmur of the words upon the top of the sea going out towards the wide ocean, just like a breath of wind rippling along, and says he in the greatest wonder, Is it speaking you are, my darling, to the salt water? It's nothing else, says she quite carelessly. I'm just sending word home to my father, not to be waiting breakfast for me, just to keep him from being uneasy in his mind. And who's your father, my duck, says Dick. What, said the marrow? Did you never hear of my father? He's the king of the waves, to be sure. And yourself, then, is a real king's daughter, said Dick, opening his two eyes to take a full and true survey of his wife that was to be. Oh, I'm nothing else but a maid man with you and a king your father, to be sure he has all the money that's down in the bottom of the sea. Money, repeated the marrow. What's money? "'Tis no bad thing to have when one wants it,' replied Dick. "'And maybe now the fishes have the understanding "'to bring up whatever you bid them?' "'Oh, yes,' said the marrow. "'They bring me what I want.' "'To speak the truth,' said Dick, "'tis a straw bed I have at home before you, "'and that, I'm thinking, is no ways fitting for a king's daughter. "'So if it would not be displeasing to you, "'just to mention a nice feather bed with a pair of new blankets,' But what am I talking about? Maybe you have not such things as beds down under the water. By all means, said she, Mr Fitzgerald, plenty of beds at your service. I've 14 oyster beds of my own, not to mention one just planting for the rearing of young ones. You have, says Dick, scratching his head and looking a little puzzled. "'Tis a feather bed I was speaking of, but clearly yours is the very cut of a decent plan. To have bed and supper so handy to each other that a person, when they'd have the one, need never ask for the other. However, bed or no bed, money or no money, Dick Fitzgerald determined to marry the Merrow, and the Merrow had given her consent. Away they went, therefore, across the strand, 
from Goleris to Ballinrunig, where Father Fitzgibbon happened to be that morning. There are two words to this bargain, Dick Fitzgerald, said his reverence, looking mighty glum. And is it a fishy woman you'd marry? The Lord preserve us. Send the scaly creature home to her own people. That's my advice to you, wherever she came from. Dick had the Coheline Druif in his hand and was about to give it back to the Merrow, who looked covetously at it, but he fought for a moment and then, says he, Please, your reverence, she's a king's daughter. If she was the daughter of 50 kings, said Father Fitzgibbon, I tell you, you can't marry her, she being a fish. Please, your reverence, says Dick again in an undertone, she is as mild and as beautiful as the moon. If she was as mild as and as beautiful as the sun, moon and stars all put together, I tell you, Dick Fitzgerald, said the priest, stamping his right foot, you can't marry her, she's being a fish. But she has all the gold that's down in the sea, only for the asking, and I'm a made man if I marry her. And, said Dick, looking up slyly, I can make it worth anyone's while to do the job. Oh, that alters the case entirely, replied the priest. Why, there's some reason now in what you say. Why didn't you tell me this before? Marry her by all means if she was ten times a fish. Money, you know, is not to be refused in these bad times. And I may as well have the handsel of it as another that maybe would not take half the pains in counselling you as I have done. It's quite hard playing all the parts, I'm not going to lie. So Father Fitzgibbon married Dick Fitzgerald to the Merrow, and like any loving couple, they returned to Goleris, well pleased with each other, well pleased with each other. Everything pro- prospered with Dick. He was at the sunny side of the world. The Merrow made the best of wives, and they lived together in the greatest contentment. It was wonderful to see, considering where she had been brought up, how she would busy herself about the house and how well she nursed the children. For at the end of three years, there were as many young Fitzgeralds, two boys and a girl. In short, Dick was a happy man, and so he might have continued to the end of his days if he had only the sense to take proper care of what he had got. Many another man, however, beside Dick, has not had wit enough to do that. One day when Dick was obliged to go to Tralee, he left his wife minding the children at home after him and thinking she had plenty to do without disturbing his fishing tackle. Dick was no sooner gone than Mrs Fitzgerald set about cleaning up the house and chancing to pull down a fishing net. What should she find behind it in a hole in the wall but her own Cahoulin Druif? She took it out and looked at it, and then she thought of her father, the king, and her mother, the queen, and her brothers and sisters, and she felt a longing to go back to them. She sat down on a little stool and thought over the happy days she had spent under the sea. Then she looked at her children and thought on the love and affection of poor Dick, and how it would break his heart to lose her. But, says she, he won't lose me entirely, for I'll come back to him again, and who can blame me for going to see my father and my mother after being so long away from them? She got up and went towards the door, but came back again to look once more at the child that was sleeping in the cradle. She kissed it gently, and as she kissed it, a tear trembled for an instant in her eye and then fell on its rosy cheek. 
She wiped away the tear and turning to the eldest little girl, told her to take good care of her brothers and to be a good child herself until she came back. The marrow then went down to the strand. The sea was lying calm and smooth, just heaving and glittering in the sun, and she thought she heard a faint, sweet singing inviting her to come down. All her old ideas and feelings came flooding over her mind. Dick and her children were, at the instant, forgotten, and placing the Kahulin Druif on her head, she plunged in. Dick came home in the evening and missing his wife, he asked Kathleen, his little girl, what had become of her mother, but she could not tell him. He then inquired of the neighbours and he learned that she was seen going towards the strand with a strange looking thing like a cocked hat in her hand. He returned to his cabin to search for the Kahulin Druif. It was gone and the truth now flashed upon him. Year after year did Dick Fitzgerald wait expecting the return of his wife, but he never saw her more. Dick never married again, always thinking that the marrow would sooner or later return to him, and nothing could ever persuade him but that her father the king kept her below by main force. For, said Dick, she surely would not of herself give up her husband and her children. While she was with him, she was so good a wife in every respect, that to this day she is spoken of in the tradition of the country as the pattern for one under the name of the Lady of Goloris. Meros were known for singing enchanting songs to lure others to them. These mermaids were mostly kind, but occasionally they would lash out at sailors or anyone else who startled them at the wrong moment. The Irish were suspicious of these sea fairies, who could be violent or friendly by turn. They could be dangerous foes. Tales of violence such as pulling the arms and legs off of their victims, as we have heard, were not uncommon. Sailors and fishermen found the marrow irresistible, especially when the sea fairies combed their silken hair. The comb was a magical symbol of feminine power in Celtic mythology. Men would become smitten with them despite the risks. Some would try to steal their Kahulan Druif, their magic cap, so that they could not go back underwater. Many marriages, some less than ideal given the method of wooing, were thusly arranged between Merrow and man. The Merrow who lived with men on the land by choice or by necessity would often tire of their new circumstances. In time, these charming creatures would grow homesick for the sea and the lucky ones who still had their magic caps would find a way to return. Other female Mero would sometimes lure desirable men with their sweet voices and their magical wiles and then take them under the waves to live amongst their own fairy kind. They would dwell together in a bewitched state, sometimes for years and years. Little is known about Merrowmen except that their bodies were covered in emerald scales with stunted limbs and green hair. It is said that they are so bitter over their appearance and loneliness that they capture the spirits of drowned sailors and keep them incarcerated under the sea in a desperate attempt at revenge. Merrow women, on the other hand, were beautiful with long, radiant hair and glistening scales. They preferred the company of human men to those of their hideous species. Many human men have been seduced by these mystical creatures over time. 
It was said that in order to keep these beautiful creatures on land, a human mate would need to take the Mero's magical cap before she could enchant them with her song, or their soul was captured forever to be held in a cage beneath the waves. When this cap was taken from her and hidden, she could not return to the sea. To possess her cap meant you held a great power over her and the human could persuade her to marry them. Such unions with humans were destined to be short-lived and the Merrow would drag her suitor back with her beneath the waves. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Written accounts of the Merrow woman luring unsuspecting Irishmen date back to the ancient annals of the Kingdom of Ireland, also known as the Annals of the Four Masters. Indeed, even the all-powerful demigods of chaos, known as the Fomorians, were not immune to their charms. Legend tells that at Killen Abbey in County Clare, a Merrow swam up to the lake to enter the crypts and steal wine from their cellars. She was caught and killed, but before she died, she dragged herself back to the lake, where it is believed that every 40 years, the water turns red with her blood. The lake has red clay, which can give it its red tinge, but I like to believe it is the Merrow Mermaid reminding us of the injustice done to her. In the 1960s, there was a reported sighting of Merrow women at Kilconley Point, Kerry, and in 1936, in Renville County, Galway, there were reported sightings of the more elusive Merrow men. Two fishermen, Martin Hinew and Thomas Reagan, were approached by him in a cove, and the bearded creature grabbed at their curé or scabbard. One of the fishermen went to hit the creature with his oar, but the other man stopped him, for superstition dictated that the man who struck Amero with his oar would die within the year. So I have a poem called Catch of the Marrow for You by Thomas O. Carthag. The waves in time give up the sight of the marrow's catch that fishes at night. The tears that washes the faces with grief wash them anew bittersweet relief. At least their flesh is among their own again to be laid with forefathers and remembered then. The marrows of life, misfortune or folly or pressures too great for a person to carry. No creature is it as once believed to be. Still the marrow takes her share to the waves of the sea. 
and that is said to be dedicated to the memory of those whose lives end in the water. So I have no business in trying to pronounce these, but I have some Celtic Mero names for you. So Mero women are Duana, which is Irish for song, Megan, Irish for pearl, Maeve, Irish for goddess of song, Mai, which is Irish for pearl, Myrin, Irish goddess of the sea, Marella, Celtic for shining sea, Ronat, which is Celtic for seal, Shoni, Celtic for sea god, Ula, Celtic for jewel of the sea, and Una, Celtic, and also Welsh for white wave. And for Merrow men, we have Braden, Irish for salmon, Ennis, Irish for from the island, Hurley, Irish for sea tide, Merrick, Irish for ruler of the sea, Morgan, Celtic for fighter of the sea, Morrissey, which is Irish for choice of the sea, Muran, which is Irish for of the sea, I'm not going to try and pronounce that one, Shiny, Irish for sea god, and Iska, which is Irish for water. Join me after the break when I'm going to read to you The Soul Cages, written by Danielle Dolsky. is The Soul Cages, written by Danielle Dolsky from her book, Seasons of Moon and Flame. In a land of haggard goals, near dead birch trees, grey waters and storm, there lived an ordinary witch who knew too much. The witch was not cast out from her village, but rather had developed quite a disdain for people over her few short years. Liked well enough, she was, but her heart was a hard one. People complained as she had no time for such whining. People differed when trying to make decisions, and she could not bear the thought of wasting even one more breath of advice on such indecisiveness. She was a tough one, you see. She had learned to fend for herself as an orphaned babe, and having no fondness for friends, had moved to this place of storm and sea without so much as a mournful thought for the people or place she was leaving behind. She was called crazy, as all the best people are, for this place where she built her home with her own two hands, mind you, was quite difficult to reach. One had to scurry down a dodgy rope on the cliffside, being ever so careful to not look down, then balanced quite precariously on a wind-rocked bridge. 
Even the best of her friends thought it best to let her be. Some say the witch built her house right here on purpose, trusting she'd never be in danger of house guests, while others say the witch's great-grandmother's ghost told her to build there in that rough place, promising her that great reward would come her way if she made a wild home of her own. In any case, a wild home she did make, and no one came to visit her there. She was an outcast by choice, after all, and she liked it just that way. Weeks went by after the humble house was built. It was sturdy enough, shielded from the wind between the rocks. But alas, even the lonest wolves grow wary of solitude. Even the hardest heart wants a friend from time to time. A storm raged that first evening when the witch began to question her choices, as we all do. The full moon disappeared behind the thick of rainfall clouds. Thunder roared so loud that the rocks around the house shook and the waves were coming so close to the house that the bridge had flipped upside down. For the first time in her life, the witch was afraid and she wondered if she had let her stubbornness get the better of her. She lit a small and humble fire then, whispering prayers to Manon MacLear to protect her, to not ferry her off to the other world too soon. The witch finally slept that night to the sounds of storm, dreaming of the face of her great-grandmother who told her to relax, that all would be well, that even the bravest women must confront their own vulnerability. The witch woke to find the sea calm and her house still standing. Relieved the bridge had also righted itself, she ventured outside her home and down to the stony shore to assess the damage. She had scarcely made it onto the beach, then she saw them. Dozens of immense crates and just as many barrels had washed onto the shore, along with a good bit of broken wood and the witch realised that a great ship must have wrecked in the storm. She shrugged off the disaster of it all, having no love for ships or sailors, and began to collect her bounty. It was no small feat, but she rolled the barrels to a safe and hidden place, breaking them open one by one and carrying casks of fine drink and spices back up to her house. The boxes were full of beautiful furs, leather shoes, and even small chests of gold. The witch spent the day packing her home with these treasures, and with her body good and sore from a hard day's work, she rested at the half-side then, draped in the finest clothes she had ever seen, smoking a pipe and sipping some heady whiskey that made her quite pleased with herself. A queen I am, she said aloud, and all her trepidations from the night before were washed away. That night she dreamed of her great-grandmother again, though this time she was less reassuring. Sitting atop a rock peppered with seals she was, sitting and singing alongside a red-haired marrow, a fish-like fairy with a human face and much, much old magic. Her great-grandmother crooned a hymn of peril and tears while the marrow played a harp with the kind of skill creatures have only in dreams. The days started to drag on again then. 
Soon after only a month, the food and drink were gone and the witch's clothes, though still very fine, had begun to bore her. At dusk on a particularly lonely day, the sky darkened and another storm began to roll in from the west. She prayed to the full moon to protect her and she burrowed herself under her bearskins. Worse even than last moon storm, this one rocked her house to and fro and she scarcely slept at all. Sure, she would wake swallowed by the sea. The sun did rise, however, and again the witch found a bounty waiting for her on the shore. Even posher food and drink, robes and fabrics and smoke and spice awaited her and she spent the day hauling her gifts to her home. Like before, these beautiful things fed her for a time, kept her warm and satiated for a little while. And then, just when she grew bored, another storm would come and send her more bounty. With each full moon would come a fearsome evening of thunder and lightning, and with the torrent would come the treasures. For many years this continued, and all the while the witch would dream of her great-grandmother and the marrow. The witch thought she was truly living the best life she could, though loneliness would still come for her and her aching heart was always soothed by her hall on the mornings after the full moon. She began to wonder, though, if this was all there was, the consuming, the storm, the gathering and the taking. There had to be more to this precious life, she thought, and that's errant thought that small wonder if there could be something deeper, something even more rewarding than all her golds and silks, opened up the slightest crevice in her wholeness. A tiny crack it was, a slight fissure in this altogether and otherwise perfect existence she had built for herself. Some say that it was through that crack in her own perfection that the witch began to see more clearly. She was gifted with a second sight, they say, and before the next full moon swelled to fruition, the witch swam out to the seal-covered rock where she often dreamed of her great-grandmother sitting with the marrow. And sure enough, there atop the rock was the red-haired fishwoman playing her harp and looking quite devilish. Ah, it's taken you quite a long time, the marrow shook her head. What kind of witch are you anyway? The witch was aghast. Your great-grandmother found me right away, she did, but you've been awfully gold-hungry, haven't you? You you knew my great-grandmother, the witch began calculating the marrow's age, and her furrowed brows gave her away. Best not try to think your way into a fairy's mind, love, it never works, and anyway, we are immortal. I might have known your great-great-great-grandmother for all you know. She rested her heart down and tapped a seal lovingly on its nose. Now off we go. She held out her hand and moved towards the edge of the rock. Where are we going? I can't breathe under the sea, the witch protested. The marrow smirked. You can and you will. I've been waiting a long time to meet my dear friend's great-granddaughter. You wouldn't refuse my hospitality, would you? The witch thought for a moment gazed at her house no more than a dot on the cliffside from here, knew she would only spend the night drinking and lost in loneliness if she were to go home, and assented with a single nod. Down deep they dove, and it seemed that so long as the witch held tight to the marrow's arm, she would be able to breathe. 
It seemed hours went by, though perhaps it was only moments, before the two of them went so deep that they fell from the water onto dry land. Deep under the sea they were, but in a liminal place that was not quite liquid and not quite air. Heavy with salt was her breath, but the witch could move about on her own here. The mirror led her to her house, a brilliant place full of garish shellwork and treasures scavenged from shipwrecks. What undersea luxury this place was. The witch considered for a moment how lush her own humble house had become after just a few years of collecting her bounty, and she could only imagine what a majestic hoard an immortal life spent gathering would bring. Late into the night, the witch in the marrow drank and ate, telling jokes and stories, and the witch had never known such camaraderie, such kinship. Alas, her lungs started to ache after a few hours, struggling to breathe well in this deep place. Before you go, I want to show you something, dear witch. The marrow led her into a shadowy room and the witch shivered. What is this place? She asked, taking notice of dozens of upside down bone baskets strewn about the floor. What might those be? That's what I wanted to show you, the marrow answered. Those are the soul cages. The witch clicked her tongue. What a terrible name. What do you mean? Each full moon when a ship crashes, I swim off into the deep and catch the souls of the sailors, keeping them here. I'm a bit of a soul collector, you might say. The witch started to question her new friend's goodness. Why would you do that? Do they not deserve peace? The marrow shrugged, ignoring the witch's question. Come, you'll need to get topside before you drown. The witch obliged, suddenly aware that she could barely breathe, and they swam up, up and up until they reached the seal's rock. There'll be no storm tonight, the marrow looked to the half moon. You can make it to the shore from here on your own, I think. The witch nodded, still sick from seeing the soul cages, but managing some words of thanks for the food and drink. Shall we do this again next month, perhaps on the half moon? The marrow asked with such hope. There would have been another storm by then and we'll be rolling in the drink. The witch took a breath and nodded, recalling the warmth of company, already plotting how she might set all those poor souls free. Lovely, the marrow bowed, until then. The witch sat atop the rock until dusk started to fall, pondering whether she would make it to the Marrow's house on her own and be able to open the traps. In the end, she thought the journey would be the death of her, and she swam slowly to the shore. That night, the witch spent nearly every second thinking about the soul cages, plagued by guilt that those were the very souls whose deaths had paid for her fine living and she could scarcely look upon anything in her house without seeing a soul cage, without considering the names and faces of those who had died. Her father had been a sailor long ago, was his soul trapped in the Merrow's shadowy room. She started to see the hands of those who had packed the crates, the faces of those who had hoisted them high onto the ship, who had screamed for their mothers when the storm came. The morning of every full moon, the witch would normally wake full of excitement, full of small prayers for what she hoped might wash ashore, 
but this time she is full of dread. She prayed to the old gods to keep the storm away and for the first time since she had left her village, she considered venturing back to the town. She did not, of course, stubborn creature that she still was and the storm did come. A beast it was too. The witch watched the lightning strike the waters over and over again and she spoke words of blessing for the ships that might be caught in the fury. She had nightmares that evening of the marrow venturing out and collecting the souls and she wept for her part in this sadness. In the morning, she climbed down to the beach, dragged the barrels and the crates to her safe place but opened none of them. These things are not mine, she muttered, making a sacred symbol of blessing above the lot. When the half moon approached, she began to plot. Down to the Merrow's house she would go, as invited, but she would sneak away from the table at some point and release all the souls from their cages. It wouldn't be too hard, she thought, for the Merrow liked whiskey more than she did. On the fateful afternoon when the half moon rose in the sky, the witch waited on the seal rock for the marrow, who startled her, erupting from the water with a laugh. Well, let's go, I've prepared quite the feast. The witch reached out, taking the marrow's arm, and down they went. At some point, during the fourth course of what seemed to be an endless meal, the marrow asked the witch a poignant question. So tell me... I see that you've yet to enjoy any of last month's bounty. What's keeping you from the hall? The witch swallowed, not wanting to give away her plans. I, I, I just haven't had the time, she lied. And anyway, my house is quite full. I'm not sure what I'm to keep doing with all of this. The marrow looked perplexed. Oh, well, you can always build another house. The witch grunted, shooing away the thought that, yes, she could build another house. She could forget the soul cages, forget the marrow even, and go back to living in finery. She could, only she could not unsee what she had seen or unknow what she had come to know. There was no turning back now. Her world was bigger. After the seventh course, the marrow was leaning heavy on the table and telling the same story for the third time. The witch wondered if she would die here, if the mirror would pass out and be unable to carry her to the surface before her breath became too heavy. But she shunned the thought of giving up now. I, I need to stretch my legs a bit, the witch lied again. But the mirror's eyes were half closed and she was droning on and on about some poor pirate she once knew. Now was the witch's chance, of course and she quite easily slipped into the shadowy room, still hearing the marrow's babbling, she was sure she was safe, and the witch lifted up the bone baskets, one by one. There appeared to be nothing inside, but with every cage she lifted, there was the softest whistling sound, and often a cool breeze on her face. Confident she'd freed them all, the witch returned to the table where the marrow was still slurring and blubbering. Uh, marrow, I hate to interrupt, but I'm starting to struggle a bit with the breath, the witch lied yet again. Would you mind taking me up? The marrow's eyes got a little wider now, 
Oh, yes, sorry, I've had a bit too much to drink, I suppose. Let's be off then. The journey was swift and the whiskey hadn't seemed to slow the Merrow's pace in the water at all. Once safely atop the rock, the witch wondered if she should tell the Merrow what she'd done, tell the creature to get another hobby, but she thought better of it. Until next month, my friend, the Merrow waved before going under, and the witch felt very light as she swam home, proud of herself even. That night, she slept better than she had in years, but as the full moon approached, she started spending her days dreading the storm again. How many times would she need to have dinner with the Merrow, only to release the souls, she wondered. The night of the full moon, she watched the sky like a raptor with the sea, but there were no grey clouds to speak of. There was not so much of a rumble of thunder and the storm never came. She could scarcely believe it, but the moon stayed full and bright all night long. There was no bounty to be scavenged the next morning, of course, and the witch wept with joy. Those who tell this story tend to leave it to you to decide. Was the Merrow an ill-minded creature who caused the storms in order to catch the souls and who, knowing the witch would keep her from claiming them now, moved on to another part of the sea where her affairs would not be meddled in? Or was the Merrow testing the witch all along to see if she loved her bounty more than she loved her fellow human creatures? Or did the witch do what her great-grandmother could not? finding more bravery than her foremother had. Or perhaps it was all of these things, or none of them. But all agree that the witch did, in the end, gather what finery and gold she had and return to her village, gifting her wealth to those who needed it more than she did and finding a certain peace and sense of belonging within this world she had sought so fervently to leave. That is all for today's episode. I feel like you have been along on a wild ride that is somewhat like an amateur dramatics performance with me, myself and I. So thank you so much for coming. (laughs) I will be back soon with more podcast content. I just want to say thank you so much. There's been a lot of new reviews recently. I'm really grateful. If there's one thing that you can do, I'd be really grateful if you could leave me a review. It means more witches can find the show. If you love this kind of content, you can find me over on the White Witch Coven on Patreon. For £6 a month, you get extra exclusive Patreon podcast episodes once a month. We've just had an episode on ancestor veneration. There's also on there one about like Uh, what have we done on there? Hallowed. So it's all about kind of restarting, recreating your practice, but making it bespoke to you. The other episode we have on there is all about shadow magic. So it delves a lot into death energy and so on. Perfect for this time of year. We also have the Literary Witches Coven that has moved over to Patreon. Our book for November is Woman Most Wild, written by Danielle Dolsky, who, of course, wrote that particular version of The Soul Cages. We have a monthly full moon Discord call with all the witches on there. We also have a monthly Literary Witches Coven call, which will start up once we've all read that first book. 
Uh, there are yet grimoire sheets for season two of the podcast and tons of other extra witchy content. The Discord witchy community are amazing on there. It is quite a big group now, but again, it's only three months going. So we are all still like getting to know each other. It's been amazing, a very supportive, amazing group of witches. I will put all my social media links in the show notes. I'll put a link in there. If you do want to buy my book, I'd be really grateful. It is certainly the perfect book for this season. Oh, I feel like I'm giving it a right hard sale now. I'm not trying to do that, but it is good for shadow work. So perfect for this season. I will catch up with you all soon, witches. Lots and lots of witchy love. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.